Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Please turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Titus chapter 3. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed, uh, those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you asking for your help. Lord, we can't even worship without your strength. We can't even worship as a way of full sacrifice to you, for we depend on you to do it. So, Lord, we ask that as we listen to these words uh, from, the, from your word, and we listen as I speak, Lord, that you will bring power through your Holy Spirit, that what is said will be from you, that what we hear are your words. Lord, let this be a time of hearing and convicting through this power of the Holy Spirit because of the work of the Son and because of the love of the Father. Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to talk about Titus today. We're going to talk about something that has been on my heart uh, quite a bit, something I've been thinking a lot about, 
mostly because the things that bother us most about other people uh, tend to be things that we're struggling with ourselves. Um, I, as you know, I work at a university, which means I'm surrounded by 18 to 20-something-year-olds, which uh, mean that you meet a lot of people who have never uh, really gotten over how special they are. And uh, you have to kind of deal with that. You have to kind of be patient with them and things like that. And, um, and the fact that they're in college, of course, and they're pursuing something that's going to make them really important, so they think. And uh, one thing that I, I uh, keep struggling with is the unbelievable assumptions that are made by college students. Um, College students believe as they sit in a classroom uh, learning things that are quite lofty, uh, some uh, pretty important complexities and things like that, they come to the conclusion that they are able to handle those things because they are that special. Um, It doesn't occur to them that they have had an elementary school life and a high school life in which maybe many people have poured into them, making it possible to think critically and able to endure the kind of learning they're going to do in in college. It may not occur to them that they have had parents, perhaps, that have poured into them in their homeschooling all these years and uh, made it possible for them to think up uh, the stack of Bloom's taxonomy all the way to being able to create new ideas. It doesn't occur to them that the boring uh, pastor that they had back home, uh, that they uh, just didn't really find very much, you know, they didn't grow very much under him, Uh, But now they're ready to reach new heights of spirituality at college uh, where they can uh, find some superiority over someone else because of their piety. Um, It does not occur to them that uh, no matter how they're paying for college, someone's sacrificing, whether it be our tax dollars or their parents paying Um, Or whatever it is, uh, it seems as though many young people today believe that they are here uh, on this earth and they're doing everyone a big favor by their presence. Um, And of course, you know, when you see enough of that, it's, you know, it's, it kind of, it kind of gives you a bad taste in your mouth. But, but as I read these passages... As I look at the entirety of the book of Titus, um, I have realized that some of the things that I am so annoyed at with 18 to 20-some-year-olds, I find annoyance there because that same heart is in me. Paul is calling on Titus to be a good pastor. And Paul is looking at Titus as someone he has, uh, 
he has put a lot of time and work into, and he calls him his son in the faith, as he did Timothy. Uh, when you look at Titus chapter 1, he talks about uh, elders' qualifications, which often look like, uh, how do I engage this world with my good works? What are good works? And if someone is doing good works, that is usually part of the qualifications of eldership. Chapter 2, teaching sound doctrine for the purpose of the congregation being zealous in good works. And then chapter 3, we find ourselves here where Paul tells Titus, remind them to be subject to rulers, authorities, be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. And then not to malign anyone, but we should be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. What I find interesting uh, in our world that is so afraid of Pharisees, uh, we see this reminder to be ready for every good deed. The Bible has a lot to say about good deeds. My uh, students, I teach an apologetics course, and my students uh, get hung up on this. Uh, they're worried that, you know, uh, I got a question the other day, you know, when we die, even though I'm a Christian, is God still going to hold me accountable for what I did here on earth? Uh, very disappointed to hear that, yeah, <laughs> afraid so. Uh, we don't get to be antinomians the minute we get saved, right? Um, but that is, you know, and so then, and the university I teach at, of course, uh, Bob Jones University being one where every student is terrified of being a Pharisee because that's kind of how people have viewed uh, people at that school. And so they're terrified of being a, a Pharisee. And of course, Pharisees are people that are hung up on these good works, right? Doing good works. And we almost feel as though, especially in the Protestant world, where our big pride is that we don't get to heaven by works like those Catholics believe. And we're much more, you know, the Reformation helped us understand that. And we, what we forget is that we are getting to heaven by good works. They're just not ours, right? Jesus Christ's good works, we depend on those. He had to have those good works um, so that we might have a perfect sacrifice who did what we failed to do who did what the first Adam failed to do during his probation. There's almost a sense in which we have fallen as Protestants into something that you probably wouldn't see too much in Catholicism, which is the idea that once I'm saved, Jesus has forgiven me, and now I can live a life of grace, and we don't have to worry so much about our good works. Yet Paul seems to be pretty interested in it, as he was inspired under the Holy Spirit to write these words. In fact, it seems to be the big theme that Paul was interested in to get Tim, uh, Titus uh, to uh, propagate in his church. That we are to be ready for every good work, 
And how do we get ready for every good work? There seems to be this sense of there is a list of maturity and wisdom that needs to be in place so that we can be ready. Uh, The maturity uh, was talked about in that first part. Remind them to subject themselves, right, to, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient. I mean, look at what our, where our world is when it comes to this list, being subject to rulers, to authorities, to subject yourself to authorities, to be obedient people. Um, it doesn't, and I'm not even talking about Hollywood. I mean, think about in Hollywood how the uh, heroes are the ones that don't have to subject themselves to authority. Uh, the heroes are the ones that stand up against authority and all that sort of thing. And we even have that in our, um, in our politics. And I'm not, you know, obviously don't care enough to talk about that right now. But, uh, but you know, there's a sense of which of standing up to the man and um, especially when you have incredibly poor leadership, as we do presently, it sure feels good to stand up against authority. But we kind of carry that over, right? We even carry that over into the church, where it seems that, you know, I will subject myself to the authority of the church as long as they uh, see things my way. Uh, If they don't see things my way, if they start challenging me in ways that I don't want to be challenged, if they start sounding mean to me, or if they start challenging me in my failures at home, then I'm not so interested in being subject. Um, Have we taught our young people that the default... If I can put it this way, men, the default way of being masculine and manly is to be one who has a pattern of subjecting himself to authority. And in that subjecting himself to authority, it would be a very rare thing to rear up against it. And if I did, it would have to be really important. But in today's world, it is the default to rear up against authority. That's the default. It's very strange to see men subjecting themselves to authority. And in that, that seems to be connected not just to obedience, but connected to every being ready for every good deed. And somehow, even in that uh, vein, Paul... Uh, sees a connection to not maligning anyone. To be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. There's a term that has kind of uh, gotten askew over the years. Uh, The term gentleman, being a gentleman. Uh, Typically, as we... We grow up with, you know, teaching our young men how to be gentlemen. It usually diffuses itself into hold the doors open for a lady, and that's good. That's good. But what is a gentleman? 
Uh, there's a, there's a uh, Christmas um, hymn, uh, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. What were they talking about when they were talking about gentlemen? What did it mean to be a gentleman? I mean, nowadays, it almost sounds like weakness, right? Uh, someone's going to be a gentleman. It almost sounds like this kind of passive, weak person. But instead, back in the day, uh, being a gentleman meant someone that possessed a kind of power about them that subjecting themselves to authority looked quite magnificent because they had the power and the strength and the fortitude to stand against it, but they were able to be subject to it. To be courteous to someone else when you have the power not to be. To look for every way that you could be considerate in every consideration to all men when you don't have to be. I've seen this uh, more lately. I went from being a person that made a living being a faculty member to being a person that's now making a living as administration. <laughs> and uh, it's weird. Uh, you know, a lot of faculty members kind of see people in administration as sellouts. And I get it. I can see that. Uh, uh, there is a sense of selling out. Um, and, uh, and I'm glad I did. I just, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying I get it. Uh, but... Um, but in that world, I have found that there are really two kinds of men. When you get into the higher echelons of people that, that are in positions of power, and not just power for a particular world, but a power in which people from the rest of the world acknowledge it, where you, you know men that are in positions of power that then know men who are like senators and and important people beyond that world, and, and you know, they're looked upon uh, with reverence, and, and this, is a, this is a really big person. And I'll tell you, the, the two kind of men that I've, that I've seen in that world are men that love the power. Um, they are not men that have vision uh, for the place that they are working, but they are men that have vision for themselves. They envision themselves in a particular place. They envision them being glorified and maintaining their position. And then you see men who are in a position of power that don't make much of it, where even though they are looked upon as important, even by people outside your realm, uh, they act like they're just normal, everyday people. Um, they're courteous to you, even if you're not important. They're kind when they don't have to be kind. It's not really in their job description to be kind. They're kind anyway. You see a strength in that kind of work uh, that you would might even call gentleman-type work. When you're being gentlemanly, you find a person who has the power to be cold, the power to be treated 
uh, in a proper way, yet chooses to, choo- chooses to treat others in a proper way. It's actually quite strong. I say all this because uh, Paul then contrasts this with something else. If you look at uh, verse 3, he says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in, mal- in malice and envy, hateful, hating others. Look how he has just done the reverse of what he, said, what he told others to do. He said that instead of wise people who understood how to put themselves under authorities, they were foolish. Which would mean what? What's a foolish man? A foolish man is one that cannot submit to authority. And I know uh, in our minds, right, we are Americans, and we are under really crummy leadership. Uh, and the first thing in our mind is, yeah, but, right? Yes, but what about this? Yes, but what about that? And I get it. I understand what, you're, what our yeah, buts are getting at. But I want, to think about, I want you to think about this idea of, is it our default to submit to authority? Because if our default is not to submit, then we're foolish, we're disobedient, and mostly we're deceived. This deception is very strong with immature people. We talked about maturity last week, we're still talking about it. Um, But this deception is quite strong. It's a deception that makes us see reality in a false way that we are convinced is the real way. And, I'll, and I, I don't know how else to put this. I know that sounded really, uh, really uh, quite obvious. But it comes down to this. When we are living in a way of deception, we become slaves. We are slaves to the work it takes to try and justify our false reality. When we try to justify our false reality, we have to be enslaved to our lusts, our pleasures, and we spend our life in malice and envy because that is what reality is for us. We hate and we hate others. I'll put it this way, and this might be a little more convicting. We don't like people. We just don't like people. Now, I put it in a general sense, and I know there are uh, introverted people and extroverted people, but even amongst all that psycho talk, there is still this sense of whether we like people or not. Do we love people Or do they get in the way of our uh, slavish desires? Do they get in the way of 
what we want? Do, they, do we find ourselves envying others and therefore hating them? Is our hatred or our dislike for people part of our backwards reality? When I talk about backwards reality, I mean this. Um, My wife is the reader in our family. I know I have some degrees, but uh, mostly those are because my wife got me through them. Uh, She reads to me. She's an avid reader. And I was noticing she was reading 1984. And I was looking at, uh, which now it kind of seems like it uh, should be renamed 2022. But uh, she was reading that, and I saw in there, you know, in big letters, uh, war is peace, freedom is slavery, ignorance is strength. And I said, hey, what's that about? So she's reading, you know, she's telling me about all, you know, what's going on. And, and it really comes down to a world where people have reality backwards. And they spend their life justifying their backwards reality. So they spend their life saying that war really is peace, that freedom you know, really is a slavery. You don't want that. Ignorance, this is strength. It's strong to be ignorant. And we say, well, that's, of course, a backwards world. But isn't that our world? Isn't that our hearts? While we sit around all our blessings and all that God has given us and all the things that we have, we're bothered. And what it comes down to is this. Let me continue reading to show you what I'm trying to get at here. In the middle of our hearts being ones who are disobedient, foolish, deceived, enslaved with lust and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envying others and hating others and being hateful in general but with a smile. Even with all that, it says in verse 4, but, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, verse 5, he saved us. And it obviously was not by our deeds, but his. This is what, this is the whole point of my message. This is not a complex message. This is, we're not going to even talk about any Greek. Uh, this message is simply this. We are blessed by verse 5, and it does not amaze us. He saved us. Even though we were malicious, envying, hateful, lustful, people that hated others. He saved us. And where is our gratitude for his salvation? See, when we look at he saved us, I mean, we have, and this is is something that I have struggled over a lot with young people, but I've struggled over it in my own heart that we have no appreciation for what God saved us from. 
Um, I try to describe it to my students this way, you know, what did God save you from? And, they, you know, usually they'll, they'll say that he saved us from hell. And I'll go, okay, that's a good start. <laughs> but what is hell? I mean, hell is the, that's the pain we're talking about, right? That's the eternal pain. But who's in charge of the eternal pain? I put it this way with my, with my kids. I say, okay, well, um, if we go to Dick's Sporting Goods and we walk by the baseball bats, no one is uh, terrified of baseball bats, right? You don't walk by baseball bats and you're like, whoa, I wish they had those behind some glass or something. Uh, baseball bats, you know, it's like a, a liberal seeing a gun for the first time. It's, uh, it's, it's terrifying, right? Baseball bats, what are we going to do, right? And, and uh, you know, no one's too afraid of baseball bats. But if I'm walking back to my car after visiting Dick's Sporting Goods and I see a 300-pound muscle-bound man holding a baseball bat and he looks angry at me and he's waiting for me at the car, I'm suddenly quite afraid of baseball bats, right? But it's really not the baseball bat uh, per se, it's who's holding it, Right? This muscle-bound, 300-pound man who's angry. And I can only imagine what he's going to do with that baseball bat. When we're talking about being saved, right? We've kind of made that into a, into a cliche, uh, unfortunately, because of different uh, ways we've used it in our history. When we talk about being saved, we're talking about being saved from the wrath of God. Hell is terrifying only because of whose hands it's in. A God who is angry. And angry justifiably. And by all measurements, he should be angry at each and every one of us in the sanctuary. He should be angry at you. His anger should roll against us like waters building and building and building and waiting to crush us because of his anger compounding and compounding upon us as we ignore the anger of the Lord as we ignore who he is and how we have offended him, and that anger piles upon piles upon piles of anger waiting to be released upon us at any second, and we stand like teenagers who have taken for granted once again everything that has been given him. And those waters should crush us, but instead... We have mercy. Instead, he saved us, not, by, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. I sometimes pity our brothers who don't understand the covenant between God and Adam. When they get to Romans chapter 5, uh, and it says that we have sinned with Adam. They don't know exactly what to do with that. I am glad they believe it by faith, and that's wonderful. 
But they don't have any categories as we do to understand that we don't live in a world that is an American reality where God would judge all of our bootstraps and whether we have pulled ourselves up by them or not. But rather, we live in a covenantal reality in which we are absolutely and fully responsible for our father, Adam. And we sinned in him. We took that fruit as well. We did not defend Eve either. And we are absolutely responsible for that sin because God created a covenantal reality, not an American one. And that's hard for us to understand growing up in this world. But here we are, fully deserving of the Almighty's wrath to come upon us in true justice. True justice would be each and every one of us to burn and burn and burn, and God's wrath to continually come down, come down, come down, and it doesn't ever stop. That's what we deserve. That's who we are. We are not stained by sin. Remember we learned this when we were learning about Luther. This was Luther's big uh, problem with the church, right, at least at the beginning, that they believed that people were stained by sin, otherwise good beings had this stain that could be washed away through baptism. And Luther was saying, that's not what baptism is supposed to be. Baptism needs to be a resurrection, not a cleaning of something that gets us a little dirty. We're not stained by sin. We are the sin. If we're going to be cleansed by sin, we got to die. And we look at this, and it's hard to get excited about God's mercy. It's hard to be thankful for God's mercy, because what does thankfulness drive us to do? Those of us that have, that have children, you understand this better than anybody. I, I used to think, before, before you have kids, this is how you think life is. Uh, before you have kids, you think, well, being a good Christian involves, you know, being thankful. Uh, it involves uh, doing, you know, thing, you know, do your best for, for Jesus. Uh, it involves being wise. Uh, it involves uh, being pure. Uh, it involves all these characteristics. And, of course, thankfulness is one of those important characteristics, and it's always good to hear a good sermon on thankfulness because we all need to be more thankful, right? Just... We're just more thankful that'd be nice, and then we can go on our, and then we can learn to be other things, right? And that's how I thought life worked before I was a parent. After being a parent, I suddenly saw Scripture in a very different way. It seemed that Scripture kept pointing at something that wasn't a mere characteristic in our life that would be good if we had some, but rather was. A, uh, was something fundamental to our character. And it was this. As a parent, you get to image God. And it's a wonderful privilege. You get to image God. And part of that image bearing 
is blessing your children. You bless them by sacrificing for them in ways that they don't even understand. We decided that we were going to homeschool um, our, uh, our son Daniel. We decided that April wasn't going to work. We decided on all these different things, and part of that meant not a three-bedroom house, but a two. Part of that meant not a 3,000-square-foot house, but 1,000 square feet. It meant instead of two cars, we were going to have one. And so we did those things because we thought these were the best choices for our family. These are the best choices for our son. All these sort of things kind of went into it. And then my wife then spent most of our marriage uh, teaching our son and struggling through what it meant to homeschool and all that stuff. You sacrifice for your children, right? Here's the question, parents. What age do they get to where they're like, you know, I've been looking back at my life and I've noticed you guys have sacrificed a lot for me. I just want you to know that I'm really, <laughs> I'm really thankful for that. I mean, you know, some, you get moments of that maybe uh, some, sometimes. And, you know, those words are nice, but how do you know when someone's thankful? What are the fruits of thankfulness? Isn't it in the deeds, right? When they're seeking to help, when they're seeking to do something good for you because they are so thankful for what you have done for them. Where they almost, and this is the dream of every parent, where they almost say, I want to be someone that sacrifices because I see that you've sacrificed. And so then they do things where you see actual sacrifice in their, in their lives that show you gratitude. Gratitude is at the heart of reformed thinking. We've talked about this before, but I will beat this drum until there's no more head left on it. Um, and, you know, getting a degree from Westminster, you spend a lot of time in Romans chapter 1. It's basically why Westminster exists, is Romans chapter 1. It goes into why we are the way we are. Um, if you look at verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And unrighteousness. And this is what we learned at Westminster is at the heart of apologetics is to understand humans not as people that are ignorant and just need more information. It's not about people who have a twisted mind and if they just thought better they could then receive the gospel but rather we're talking about people who are suppressing what they know is true and they know there is a God. They know the God's attributes, his eternal power and divine nature. They know it. It's clearly seen. They're repressing it. And this is at the heart of what we call total depravity. Right? Um, coming from a world where reformed thought is the five points of Calvinism, 
we understand in a real Reformed church that the five points of Calvinism is like, you know, that will get you through the door. <laughs> but that's not, that doesn't encapsulate all of Reformed thought. But at the heart of those five points is that first point, total depravity, that if you really do accept that, the other four points uh, have to exist. Whenever I hear someone say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, or I'm a three-point Calvinist, I think, well, you don't understand the first point then. <laughs> because if you accept that first point, the other three or other four have got to be there. And at the heart of that first point is that idea of total depravity. There is nothing about us that is not depraved. There is no little spark in us that God says, oh, I see that spark. And your spark is brighter than that spark, so I'm going to save you and not that person. Or, all, or you know, if we're all Methodists here, uh, you know, I'm going to give a little more grace to this one uh, because there's something there. And, and this person might be able to uh, come to know me through my grace uh, that's dished out. But whatever it is, I hope... Uh, we're all of one heart to understand that humans are totally depraved. And what's at the heart of total depravity? What's at the heart of it? If we look through chapter 1, we find it in verse 21. Remember in verse 20 it says that they are without excuse. Everyone that enters hell is without excuse for, why are they without excuse for, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Isn't it interesting that the heart of total depravity is a lack of gratitude for our God? That gratitude is that abundance of belief. Gratitude is the abundance of believing in our God, the kind of salvific belief that comes with, through the work of the Holy Spirit to our hearts, to hearts that did not deserve it, that we didn't deserve it. It has always interests me to see uh, reality TV in which they are giving someone something that they couldn't afford. There was a show on a long time ago where they would build a house that was way super extravagant for people that couldn't afford it. They're, you know, they didn't have any. They didn't have a job. They were, uh, you know, they lost a leg in in a war or something like that. And so they come and they they build this big extravagant house. They pay off the mortgage. They even give them you know money uh, a stipend for the taxes that they now incur on this sixty million dollar house they just built. And the, they get to move in and, and, and to see the looks on their faces when they show them the house. Where they realize, I would never have gotten this if it wasn't for these people. I am completely indebted. And they break down. They weep over a house. It is interesting to me how we are able... If someone came to you, those of us that struggle over debt, those of us that struggle over paycheck to paycheck, how grateful, even to the, to the, to the tune of tears, we would be weeping if someone came and said, 
let me pay this off for you. Our gratitude would explode. We, would, we wouldn't know, even know how to handle the moment because we'd be so grateful that someone made our life so much more peaceful because now we can live not paycheck to paycheck, but we might even get to go out to eat every once in a while. We might even be able to have a savings account, if you can imagine such a thing. And we might weep over that. It might even drive us to do something for that person or to even change our habits about how we deal with money because of how that person changed our life. And I wonder how much we are thinking that way when it comes to the mercy that was lavished on us through the washing and regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he, our God, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, this is the thing, as you're looking at verses, look for the so that, look for the therefores, see what the purpose of all this is. So that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs. It wasn't that God just said, well, I'll make it so that, you know, they don't have to go to hell. And I'll let them live some kind of peaceful life for a while. But he did it so that we would be heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. This is Paul speaking to Titus saying, speak of this confidently to your congregation so that... Here we are with another so that. What's the point of all this news? What's the point of us being thankful? What's the point of, the, of, of viewing this mercy afresh and anew? What's the point of us realizing that God did not have to do any of this? That God could have started all over again after Adam? That God could have just let us keep living and condemn every single one of us and be completely glorified with humanity in hell? but instead he had mercy. What are we to do with all this? Speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. What does it mean when we can't engage in good deeds? What does it mean when we can't engage in good deeds that would require us to start liking people? What does it mean when we can't engage in good deeds because we have gotten busy? What does it mean when we can't engage in good deeds, even those of you that are young in this room with parents what does it mean when we can't engage in good deeds by honoring our parents? This lack of thankfulness is abundant in the Christian church. This lack of thankfulness is abundant in our activity in the Christian church. 
we have made Pharisees such a boogeyman that it has allowed us not to have to engage in good deeds because, after all, we're not Pharisees. What's the difference between a Pharisee and one that engages in good deeds? Remember, God had already talked about what Pharisees are back in Isaiah. Before there was even the word Pharisee, Isaiah, God had already talked about what that is like. What's it like? Being a Pharisee is someone who does a bunch of things that they think will get them somewhere or will be acceptable and admonished in the, or given great glory in the world, and they can do it with no thankfulness. Good deeds that has been spoken about from Genesis to Revelation is always in relation to our gratitude for our God and what he has done for us. We do not take care to devote ourselves to good works. What we find is that gratitude is not a feeling per se, or not just a feeling. But gratitude is an act that develops itself through good deeds. Gratitude is something that humbles us because it reminds us why we are thankful and why we don't deserve what we get because we know we shouldn't have what we have. Gratitude is image-bearing work because it mimics the kind of lavish act on us. When we start doing good deeds, this is image-bearing work where we want to mimic our Father who is generous to us. We want to be generous to others. Gratitude mirrors what we think about God's mercy. On a quiz, I am sure all of us would, would score 100% on whether uh, we check the box, thankful for God's mercy. But I wonder if our life would mirror one that demonstrates how grateful we are for God's mercy. As frustrating as teenagers can be, as they... Uh, appear ungrateful to us because of what we have done for them. I wonder how much of a teenager I've been to God, where I expect his mercy, where I have come to expect his blessings, where I've come to expect uh, the fruitfulness that he gives. As I, like a teenager, grunt and groan through my through my blessings and go to my room and slam my door because God hasn't given me enough. Gratitude is devoted to works and those works are in the honor of the object of our devotion. My prayer for me and I hope your prayer for you is that we learn to live a life of gratitude to our God. I have not been grateful to my God. I get very impatient with people who are ungrateful, and I find my heart is there as well. 
It is as if we get upset with people that remind us of our black hearts. Yet God has made us heirs. May we be grateful this week. May we be grateful by showing each other that we love each other, that we're not hateful, that we don't hate each other, that we're not envious, that we don't indulge in malice, that we're grateful for our wives, men. Ladies, that we're grateful for our husbands, that we're grateful for the fruit of what God has given us in our children. And even for this congregation that you are grateful for this church. It is, as an elder, it is very frustrating to see the great things God has done here. And it makes me wonder, why aren't these pews just jam-packed full of people? Why are we always the best-kept secret in the town? But man, what a great thing God has done for us, bringing the shepherd he has brought us, bringing the people, I mean, as you look around this auditorium, think how each of us have been a blessing to each other at some point. Already this year, I look around and I can't even think of someone that hasn't already blessed my family. May we be grateful to our God for his great mercy upon us in his salvation and even beyond just his salvation. It would have been enough if that's all he did and we lived a life of pain. But instead, he saved us and. He saved us and. There's always that and because our God is a generous God. May we devote ourselves to good works to mimic our God.